Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, y'all? We got two of our favorites back today. Our returning guests are Alpha Architects Wes Gray and Jack Vogel. In today's episode, we kick it off with an update on their ETF white label business back in 2019 when they were just a baby emergent ETF company with only a few hundred million under management. I predicted on Twitter, they would eventually be a $10 billion shop in the next five, 10 years while we're only three years in, only a third of the way there, and they're over $3 billion. Seriously, it couldn't happen to a better crew. Really proud of these guys and their team. On to the investing ideas. You know, it's pretty rare for someone who's been in the business as long as I have to learn about a totally new strategy that no one's ever described before. But the Alpha Architect squad surprised me with a new one today. You'll hear all about it. It's pretty fun and wonky, of course. We then talk about some of their new funds, Box and Hide. We talk about why you need to think more about boring things like taxes and investing, the state of value, why trend following is timeless, and what the most embarrassing moment in each of our careers is. Before we get to the episode, Wes's brother was recently on the Joe Rogan podcast and helped Joe get a bunch of reviews. So help Wes compete with his brother and go leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Alpha Architects, Jack Vogel, and Mr. Compound Your Face Off, Wes Gray. Wes and Jack, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. You know, you guys haven't been on since 2021, although you've definitely been on the show a handful of times. We'll add the links to the show notes. And I was thinking, I have to ask the producer, Colby, on what family has the most all-time participants. You guys got to be up there. I know we've had Perth on the show. We've had the Bridgeway folks. We've had who else in the Alpha Architect umbrella? Is it uh, Kai Wu's on there? Kai. Kai is the best. I love it. His is one of my favorites. Um, Yeah, Doug on there one time. Yeah, Yeah, Doug Pugazi. 
So we're going to talk about a lot today, but we got to start with an update. Wes, I don't know if you recognize my background. I actually used this for a couple of years, but recently we found out, how does it feel to be the uh, the second most famous gray? Your brother Cliff was on Joe Rogan this past week. I listened to the whole thing. And if you close your eyes, it kind of sounds like you're listening to Wes. Well, he's, uh, you know, he's really big into hunting. And unfortunately, Joe Rogan doesn't really like finance, but he loves hunting. And my brother's actually had a relationship with him for about 10 years now. And so he literally just texted him and said, hey, do you want to go on my show about three, four weeks ago? And Cliff's like, wait, is, it, is this real? Like, yeah, I'll, I'll go on your show. So that, that's literally how it happened. And an interesting tidbit, like the day before he gets there, he's like, man, like, like, does he have like a manager? Like he's such a big podcast. Like I haven't heard from him. He gets a frantic call from Joe Rogan himself. He's at the hotel booking the room for Cliff. Like, like it's literally, it's literally like a one man band over at that podcast, even though it's, you know, the biggest podcast on the planet. I just like that Grizz made an appearance in the show. And also at one point he referenced you being like a hedge fund manager. I was like, come on, you gotta, you gotta say my brother's this ETF platform, white label, you know, I know, I know, but it was a fun one. So with this picture uh, for the listeners who aren't watching this on YouTube is a beautiful area, sort of up near where Cliff does some of his hunting, where Wes and I both spent plenty of time in our in our youth in Colorado. So maybe we'll do the next Alpha Architect Democratize Quant Conference somewhere in Colorado, Puerto Rico. You guys doing it this year in uh, Philly? Jack, what's the itinerary? What story? Yeah, we're doing it in Philly this year, moving it to our new office. It's actually hidden behind the little sign I put, drug it over. So you don't see everyone walking around, but uh, yeah, we have a new office space in the Philly area in Havertown. So we're having it here on the uh, May 18th. It's going to be virtual as well. It's a little melancholy for me. You know, I have a certain fondness for all of us when we're kind of starting up, just struggling through blood, sweat and tears. And here you are now, one of the top ETF issuers last couple of years, I think you had what, like 10 funds and maybe 500 million in assets. And now walk us through, where are you guys now today? So on the ETF platform, we have 34 funds and almost three and a half billion. And we're launching eight to 10 here just the next few months. So it's kind of crazy. We'll probably double again by the end of this year. You know, we call it product market fit, but you know, one of the things that you guys have really hit on, which is, you know, snowballing at an accelerating pace is this concept of this white label sort of business. You know, we brainstormed years ago on some of these podcasts about the, you have the traditional big three launching funds, but then we said, you know, there's a lot of ideas out there where there's a use cases for any number of organizations, whether it's RIAs launching their own funds, whether it's family offices, whether on and on, and you're really starting to see it. So tell us a little bit about some of the kind of developments. The one that's obviously in the headlines is the mutual fund to ETF conversion. And there's been a bunch of big ones there. And you guys have had some. Give us an overview. What are you guys seeing? What are you guys doing? And an update. So as you mentioned, there's basically a huge market need for essentially a Shopify of ETFs or an AWS of ETFs where iShares and Vanguard and State Street are not going to allow everyone else to use their low-cost infrastructure to get access to the market. So someone's got to fill that void. 
And that's basically what our platform is helping people do. And as you highlighted, there's a lot of unique capabilities within ETF, especially on the tax reconversion side, where you could take SMAs, you could take hedge funds, you could take mutual funds, and we could convert those into an ETF in a tax-free manner, which is obviously a great way to seed and fuel an ETF with assets on day one. Yeah. And just adding to what Wes said there. So like besides, you know, mutual funds to ETFs, which everyone has seen with like dimensional funds did massive, you know, mutual funds to ETF conversions, right? The advisor SMA into ETF conversion is an interesting use case, right? So you have an advisor that's running a any number of strategies could be tactical asset allocation, could be a stock strategy. And as you know, if you're doing this for 100, 150 accounts, that can be a little difficult from operational side at times, right? Especially if you care about taxes, right? You don't want to have like short-term gains. You got to hold and certain people might, you know, if you want to put a stock in, you have to worry about like cross accounts. So that is an interesting use case that we've seen recently, which is advisors doing SMA to ETF conversions. Yeah. I mean, this is something where we had the hypothetical where we said, why wouldn't every advisor do this? Meaning, you know, and we experienced this in our early days, like you're on Fidelity or Schwab's platform and you have, whether it's dozens or hundreds, in some cases, thousands of clients, you know, many do model-based asset management, right? So, Forget the totally bespoke, but for the ones where at least a portion or a large portion of the business is a model-based offering, you can take all the BS and headache of you know, doing trades every time there's deposits and withdrawals and having to deal with very specific structures, wrap it up into ETF. And you mentioned a big, huge one, improve their tax efficiency, but also for a lot of advisors too, we've seen a lot of them that will use it for smaller accounts, you know, say, hey, maybe we'll do a bespoke for this big allocation, but also for your nieces, nephews, or kids, this 401k over here, let's just throw that in the ETF and be done with it. That's accelerating. You know, for a long time, it was a hypothetical. We're like, why don't more, more people do this? <laughs> you know, and we were like, we did it, you guys did it. And now it's starting to happen, which I think is um, really exciting. So listeners, email Wes and Jack, not me, if you're ready to launch a fund, but it's cool. It's cool to see it finally happening. One of the reasons I really wanted to get you guys back is it's hard to keep up. You mentioned you guys are launch another dozen or so with everything that's going on. And occasionally I'll see some new ideas. And as opposed to the me too's of all the big ones, right? You know, you get all the me too ideas, you get some really new innovative ideas. And I think they often may or may not get the attention they deserve. So I wanted to dig in because you guys are willing to, to launch the weird and wonky like we are. You don't mind looking at uh, uh, the, the, the little career risks. But so let's dig in on a couple, okay? The first of which is, which is I really came after you guys, is a new topic, a new fund that I've never heard of in my career, which I feel like is a little rare, but it's a fixed income ETF. The ticker is Box. You guys got a good ticker game. You guys want to give us an overview of the strategy behind this new offering? To your point, as we discussed prior, like I have a PhD in finance, Jack's got a PhD in finance. And up until about four or five years ago, when this group from Susquehanna hit us up there, they told us about box spreads. They were like, what are you talking about? And so this is, this is a new idea to, it's not a new idea. It's been around for 20, 30 years, but unless you've been a option market maker or sit on a prop desk your whole life, you never heard of a box spread. All a box spread is doing mechanically is it is a 
four leg option trade that is isolating a fixed payoff at a certain time in the future. For example, you might do a box for say a thousand dollar delivery in three months from now, right? And what is it going to consist of? It's going to consist of two trades, basically a synthetic long position where you're going to buy a call option and sell a put at say 4,000, right? That's going to create basically a synthetic long position. And then simultaneously, you're going to buy a put at 5,000 and sell a call at 5,000, which is effectively a synthetic short position. And so if you combine a synthetic long position and a synthetic short position, you have eliminated all market risk. And what you've done is you've isolated the delivery of the spread and strikes, which in this case is 5,000 minus 4,000, which is $1,000. And so you will be getting delivered $1,000 three months from now. And so the question is, well, great. What do I got to pay for that? Well, the market determines that. And because it's delivering a guaranteed $1,000, it's obviously going to sell at a pretty high price. And it's effectively, you're going to be buying this, for example, like $950, right? And so it's, it acts and operates just like a treasury bill where you're going to get delivered a set amount in the future and you pay a slight discount today. And that spread is basically the interest earned. And that is, that's effectively what a box spread is doing. It's just funding rates from the option markets. All right. So I imagine the listeners are now going to do a rewind like two or three times, listen to that description again, because it sounds like something that's really complicated. And the obvious question is, why are you going to all this work? What's the point of all this kind of convoluted trading? What's the point of this? And by the way, you guys got some good videos and fact sheets on your website. Listeners will add those as well. 100%. Why would we waste all this brain damage to recreate a T-bill? It sounds kind of insane. And as you can imagine, this took a long time to get through the, the through the systems because the SEC is like, wait a second, an option strategy doesn't have market risk. Like, what planet do you guys live on? And so we've had to explain this to everyone along the way. But the reason you you would do this is really twofold. The first one is box spreads on the lending side i.e. you know when you're when you're buying the box to like deploy your money to get extra return or whatever is generally going to be T bills plus and that ranges for anywhere from 0 to up to 50 basis points or higher so you're going to be getting the T bill return with the same risk but an extra you know anywhere from 0 to 50 basis points which is awesome that's like the mythical unicorn you're you're searching for exactly it's like holy cow we're going to get higher return for the same risk. And then the other benefit, you know, we could talk about it offline or whatever, but, and it's kind of complicated, but essentially we, we believe that this has potential to be more tax efficient. And like I said, it's not something we really want to go into the details on, but it's something to certainly explore and can reach out to discuss. Yeah. Listeners, before all of you, we lose you and fall asleep. If you want to get deep into the tax weeds, email Wes and Jack and talk about it because it's for the 0.01% of us who find this incredibly interesting, it's worth the discussion, but I don't want to lose everyone. So, okay. So what's the risk? What's the catch? You know, I think a lot of people listen to this and say, okay, you guys are trading all these complicated options to get me T-bills plus a little bit. Obviously this has to have some sort of like tail risk or <clears throat> why wouldn't everyone be doing this? So what's the catch? 
So frankly, they're, they're, this is a real arbitrage in some sense. The main difference on the risk side is the counterparty, which is the option clearing corporation versus the U.S. government. But Stare and Poor's has both. The, the U.S. government is AA plus stable outlook. OCC is AA plus stable outlook, and it's a SIF move, i.e. the U.S. government's going to back it anyway. So arguably, the risk is the same. It just delivers higher return. So, and you know, we're, we wouldn't just say that because like, you know, I went to Chicago, I believe the Fisher Markets, but it just is what it is. Yeah. It's just different counterparty risk. And uh, just backing up what you said, Mib, like we've all been doing this for a long time. And uh, when, when I heard about this a couple of years ago, it was something I had never learned, obviously, before. And it is a neat idea where essentially it kind of exists in the marketplace, right? So if I have money and I want to take a, a lever position at a broker, right? I generally have to borrow at uh, T-Bills Plus, right? If I want to lend, like just leave my money at a broker, I get paid T-Bills minus, so this kind of like splits the difference where like T-bills is the hypothetical, like when you learn CAPM, it's like you can borrow and you can lend at risk-free, right? Well, we know that's not true, right? But so that's like the hypothetical, you know, the general realistic is you do T-bills plus if you're borrowing, T-bills minus if you're lending, right? This is kind of in the middle, but it requires, uh, you know, you do have to know how to do the trade, right? A box trade. You also have to use European options, which <laughs> European versus American options are different. Explain real quick to the listeners what the difference is. High level European options can only be, they basically are exercised at expiration, whereas American can be exercised prior, right? Um, so, and I guess in theory, yeah, if you used American, you'd be taking different risks. So, And to be clear, just to make sure for all the compliance officers out there, that's the current market. But we believe in market efficiency. And if you were to say, hey, Wes and Jack, here's $20 billion, you know, the reality is we might arbitrage our own trade here because there's just not a well-developed lending counterparty on the box spread. And so to the extent, like right now, we have 150 mil in this thing. But if you, like I said, if you gave us 10 billion, like we will self-arbitrage back closer down to T-bill. So it's not like there's like free money forever. It's just, this is a very unique new idea. And as we develop this lending market, you know, presumably it will, you know, tighten down over time, but that'd be a good problem for us to have. Yeah, no. I'm, and I think this will end up being one of your most successful funds and listeners, full disclosure, we use plenty of alpha architect funds and will likely to continue using in the future. I always joke with people. I was like, look, you know, if this XYZ fund ever gets to 50 billion in a particularly niche area, you know, you probably don't want to own it because it can't do some of the same things. And, you know, who knows, things develop and change, of course, but some areas have a lot more capacity, but you guys are nowhere near that yet. So really cool. I mean, imagine the trading, you know, uh, costs are relatively small relative to the liquidity of the underlying markets. Is that pretty safe to say? So this trade, so boxes are predominantly done in SPX options, which are obviously they trade bazillions of dollars every single day. So yes, liquidity is extremely high in the box spreads that we target because that's where all the liquidity in the world exists. And it's a funding trade. And the best way to think about it, and Jack alluded to it, is if, I, if I'm if i a broker, dealer, a prop trader, a hedge fund, I could go borrow from Goldman 
for like Fed funds plus 40 bips, or I could go to the box market, right? I could just say, hey, I'm just going to go sell the box to this other person who's willing to lend to me for T-bill plus 30. And it's a win-win for everybody because you know they're not having to borrow at a higher borrowing rate from their prime and they can just borrow directly. So it's really just cutting out the middlemen of Wall Street, frankly. That's literally what box spreads are developed for. You're just you know, buy, uh, borrows and lenders through the box spread. Is there a scenario where as you guys get bigger and or could like force rank some of the opportunities, could you do this on various other markets within the fund or as other funds, you know? So like, is there the box spread on all these other option markets that may exist? Yes. So right now the plan is get three months, one to three month. One year is also well-developed. Three year is less developed and five years is even less developed. So the concept here is we're bringing a new fixed income concept to the marketplace and it's the issues we just need to develop the lending side, the education, the understanding. And it almost certainly, if we're successful in this duration, there's already liquidity out in one year and three year. Like we could extend it even longer because we just need the marketplace to realize, like, oh, a box spread. I actually know what you're talking about. It's just another avenue through which to fund, you know, borrowing and lending. And you don't have to pay the broker. You basically go direct to the borrowers and lenders. You cut out the brokers, you cut out the banks. It's just, the problem is it's an education challenge. We're going to have to develop this market over time. And, and But theoretically, you could also do it for other markets, not just S&P, right? Or am I wrong on that? Yep. 100%. You'd want to focus on European, obviously, to avoid early expiration. But yeah, you can do this on single stocks, flex options. You can do it on your, you can do it on anything. It's just SBX is where like the vast, vast majority of liquidity is. And so we just we just focus where the you know where the liquidity is right now. Yeah, I'm just thinking in my head as you guys scale and also like the inefficiencies where like your algorithms are just whirring in the background and all of a sudden one day it's like, oh no, actually you can capture XYZ bigger spread on this particular, you know, option that may be on treasuries or wheat or Tesla, whatever it may be. Anyway, just looking out to the future. But yes, it makes sense to start with the biggest and the most liquid at depth. If you guys want more information on box hit these guys because uh it gets uh it gets uh wonky quick so we started wonky let's get a little less wonky you guys had another great ticker hide let's talk about that what's the thesis behind that yeah so the idea there i think is to offer we had equity centric etfs prior so on hide the idea is we want to uh, we want to create a strategy that we think is going to help diversify an equity portfolio in both times of like high inflation and deflation. And for those familiar and who know managed futures, that's kind of the idea of a managed future strategy. So it's the high inflation and deflation ETF. But we went about doing it, I would say, I think smartly, but also simple. And so the idea is in an equity drawdown scenario, we are of the view that you have inflation or deflation. And in such a state of the world, you want to, if you have a deflationary environment, own bonds. If you have an inflationary asset uh, environment, you want to own things that are going to do well, such as commodities. Right. We also have REITs as well. We view that as like a hybrid asset. But for those who saw 2022, you know, at times bonds can underperform, do poorly, commodities in the preceding years can underperform. So what we did was we simply have a trend follow-up system 
on those three asset classes. So high level, it's a static targeted weight allocation of 50% towards intermediate treasuries, 25% to commodities, and 25% to real estate. So for example, if all the signals were on, we'd be in funds such as like IEF or you know, like in, in another intermediate term treasury ETF. On uh, REITs, we'd be in VNQ, like Vanguard, VNQ. And on commodities, we'd be in like Comb or PDBC, those type of just broad commodity ETFs. But what we do is we monthly trend follow. And actually, as of this month, all of the signals say to be out of bonds, REITs, and commodities. So when we're out of those asset classes, we just go into T-bills. So we're currently actually 100% in T-bills, which is a kind of rare occurrence. Why don't you guys just use box instead of T-bills, by the way? That seems like an obvious next step for you guys. But okay, but thinking about this, okay, I love talking about it from the perspective of the average investor. 60-40 US or the average advisor has very little real asset exposure. So, you know, a year like last year or years in higher unexpected and sustained inflation, that's a problem. How do they slot, how do they mentally slot this in? Where does it fit? Like what, because a lot of people bucket these sort of concepts. How do they think about using this? Is it like the rando all in the, the alts bucket? What's the framing? Generally, what I'd say is the framing is it's a part of the fixed income sleeve, right? So as we mentioned, it is always at all times 50% fixed income. So if you're an advisor with 60, 40 portfolio, in general, the discussion is, hey, let's do 60, 20, 20, right? So 20%, whatever bond mix you want to have, 20% potentially use and hide, or you know, 60, 30, 10. So the weightings within the fixed income sleeve obviously are going to change. And the framing there, right, is uh, essentially it it is fixed income, but even on the Bond, the REIT and commodity sleeves, uh, it is at max 50%. And we do do trend following within there. So for most advisors, I would say it really is in the bond side. You're right. You could classify this as an alternative investment for certain people. But I would say from a simplistic standpoint, you know, what does it do? Hey, if bond yields are moving up, we're going to length shorten duration. So we go from IEF, like seven to 10 year duration to T-bills, right? If commodities are doing poorly, we're going to go into T-bills. So I would say for the average investor, I view it more in the fixed income part of the portfolio. Yeah. You know, I think recording this, we're probably the only people recording podcasts during uh, the Fed meeting, not something I've traditionally spend much time watching, but you know, the the big discussion for the better part of our lifetimes has been you know, we've been in a market regime where there hasn't been inflation and you have this push-pull uncertainty of, hey, are we going to have sustained inflation or is it going to be a rip right back down to deflationary inputs? And even if you look at the Fed and their dot plots, it doesn't seem like they know. I mean, there's a huge spread range of like where they expect rates to be at the end of the year. It's like two to five or 6% or something. And so this type of concept has vastly different outcomes on particularly with with bonds, but also the real assets too. So how often does this fund update? Is it daily, monthly, quarterly? So it's monthly. We update the trend signals monthly. We use two signals for trend for each asset class. So 
going into the year, I think we were like half in commodities, which would be a 12.5% allocation of the overall portfolio. REITs and bonds were uh trend was off. So was 87% in T-bills. So yeah, monthly update, which that's uh, the cadence we're going with right now. The two big things you guys talk a lot about, you talk about value, you talk about trend. They finally had a, you know, compound your face off sort of year in the last year or two. And then this year has been a little, little kind of, you know, reversal of that scenario. What's y'all set up for how you think about the world today as regards to value or trend opportunity set? Would love to hear you guys talk also a little bit about your tools that you have on your website and how people could potentially access some of those as well. I just hit the high level. You know, so value stocks, the idea of buying cheap stocks is evergreen to me. I don't know when it's going to work, but I just know it makes sense. Buying momentum stocks. Again, I don't know when shiny rocks are cool or when they're not, but I know a lot of times they are. So I'm going to do that. And then trend following is just intuitive, like buy stuff that's trending. Don't buy stuff that's on a path to death because that's where all the death occurs is in bad trends. So it's, there's none, we're just, it's an ever, these are all evergreen concepts. And so it doesn't matter what the Fed does. I, and my outlook does not change. And I don't think it ever will at this point. Yeah. But I see a lot of tweets. Toby Carlisle, our uh, mutual friend, loves to uh, screenshot one of your tools from your website. Tell us a little bit about that. Is this advisor only? How do you get access? And what do these things do? Yeah. So we have various tools up on, on our website. One of the tools that you're mentioning that Toby likes to screenshot looks at like basically the value of value, right? So like is value relatively cheap or is it expensive relative to the past, right? And so anyone can sign up on our website and get access to the tool, number one. And then number two, what does it do? Well, simplistically uh, across a, ver- a variety of measures, such as different valuation measures, right? Like book to market, PE, EBITDA TV, like our preferred metric. What we look at is like the simple, it's a simple value of values tool where we look at the top decile of value stocks and we divide, you know, the EBITDA TV of that compared to the market. Right. And so essentially, that's one way to assess. And then we look at it over time. Right. So, what you would see, which again, we're not sharing it here, but if you, if you looked at the tool or if you looked at Toby's tweets, what you would see is that this peak, like that ratio, peaked two times before, which was like the end of the internet bubble, like December 1999. It peaked near the end of 2008. And currently, it's actually pretty high, depending on which measures you're looking at. So on like EBIT TV, it's the highest it's been. And so one thing I would say is, uh, obviously, value has lagged, I would say, past five to seven years, like especially if we go that time frame compared to the market. And uh, you know, it would be a little more disconcerting if value lagged and that spread didn't get like wider, right? Like kind of value got cheaper. So that's a tool that we have on our website that you know, anyone can view. Uh, we have other tools as well, but but that's the one I think you're referencing that uh, Toby likes to tweet out, which kind of highlights value right now is cheap relative to where it has been like in the past. And what's the story there? I mean, like you guys got any thesis for how that's going to resolve? Is it just a bunch of energy companies that are going bankrupt or what's the situation? A bunch of just regional banks that are all going down the toilet? 
So uh, with respect to the enterprise multiple one, the good news is regional banks aren't included because you can't calculate their EBIT. And, and so I do think what you're, what you're seeing here is probably just good old fashioned sentiment that hasn't been burned off yet, where the broad market, there's still these believers in unicorns of like, oh, well, let's buy this tech firm that never makes money and we'll pay like 50 times PE for it. And then you have like these guys like Exxon, who all they do is like mint money all day long and will continue to do so. And they're not having any valuation boosts. And so to the extent that the broad market is heavily invested in these you know, still go-go stocks that are way overvalued. And then there's a whole bunch of firms that are really cheap and actually make money. Until sentiment shifts and gravity matters again, you can see these divergences where you can get portfolios for 20% plus earnings yields versus markets like 5%. Like it's crazy. I mean, there's the growth differential on the market versus the cheap stocks justify a 4X spread it's never been justified ever in the history of markets as we know it. And maybe that's the case now because the world's changed, but it's always dangerous to say the world changed in the long term. Yeah. You guys also have some cool tools that lets you look at the ETF universe and sort by various factors. I don't know if I've seen this anywhere else. Can you give us a quick overview of uh, what's going on there? Yeah. The portfolio architect tool we have, which essentially is just a way to uh, assess... I would say at a little more detailed level compared to maybe like a like a Morningstar, right? So like Morningstar is pretty good given like high level overview of um, you know value growth, etc. So the tool allows you to do uh, it's, it works only for ETFs right now, but it allows you to calculate and look at you know maybe maybe uh, you don't really like book to market as your value measure, right? So you want to do like your Morningstar three by three box. Hey, well, we can change our value metric to earnings or price. And maybe we don't want to do value and size. We want to do value and quality, right? So we can change to EP and ROA and look at where funds are. You know, you can compute active share amongst funds. So yeah, it's a tool we, we built to help as like, you know, I uh, and Ryan and Wes at times have chats with advisors who are like, Hey, like, do you mind like taking a look at this portfolio? Tell me like what's going on? Like, do you have any suggestions? And the tool is very helpful in our analysis as well as the advisor, but in our analysis of what's going on in your portfolio, right? Because a lot of times what advisors don't realize is, you know, you you put all the ETFs together, compare them to SPY, and it's like the same thing, right? Which is fine if that's the goal. But it just, it's, they're tools that help us visually as well as like uh, more in the weeds show advisors, hey, what's really going on in my portfolio? Well, I think many are surprised, right? The end result conclusion often ends up being, hey, you're getting SPY, but for a lot higher expense because you either have super low active share or by mixing these four things together, you end up with SPY with no active share at a higher cost. And, and it's surprising to me how many times people kind of end up there. They have good intentions in the beginning and they build this sort of portfolio, but the end result is the same. And I think without seeing the data, it's hard to really quantify that. And I think people go through that exercise and it's a, I, it's often like a big realization. You know, They say, oh, okay, I get it. I didn't see that before, but I kind of get it now. Visual uh, images <laughs> tend to stick with people. 
So that's one of the reasons we helped build it. Yeah. I mean, we used to love to do, I mean, we talked with Eric Crittenden on the show about this, but when we were talking about trend following specifically, you know, the blind taste test where you put certain characteristics of funds or strategies in an Excel sheet and then ask people to mix and match them or how they would go about it, you know, invariably they end up with portfolios that are a lot more concentrated, but particularly allocations to other and weird things that they usually would never invest in, right? Whether it's XUS markets, whether it's real assets or strategies like value and trend. But it's also not, I was listening to a particular portfolio manager that always triggers me yesterday, um, Bloomberg. And she said, you know, we we recommend, you know, you put in like 1% of your portfolio in this fund. And I was kind of pulling my hair out because I'm like, everyone knows you put 1% in anything and it's not going to change the outcome. Like maybe on like the third decimal point, it's not going to do anything. So it's until you look at the uh the end you know bowl soup it's it's hard to it's hard to see anyway end of rant (laughs) you have a great tool (laughs) thanks what else is on your mind gents you know you guys are always working on uh the lab all sorts of crazy stuff whether it's strategies what you guys been writing about on the blog lately what's on the brain i mean we're always covering new ideas out there because we've got uh, Tommy and uh, well Larry as well and Elizabeth. <laughs> like we got the PhDs and the 200 IQ folks always perusing the literature and posting up the latest and greatest that's out there. I mean, frankly, I haven't seen much that is mind-boggling or life-changing, and much of it just reiterates what we already know. Like there was a cool Cam Harvey paper you probably saw and. You know what actually works and protects you in, in inflationary regimes and deflationary regimes. This gray paper. Yep, and it's just nice to have like someone who doesn't write something at a at a pure asset management level that's trying to pitch you something and just say, "Hey, let's look at all this stuff and just rank order what actually provided value in in unexpected inflation versus this and that and the other thing." So I thought that was pretty cool, just because it was very simple, straightforward, and address the basic question everyone wants to know. Yeah. When you say Larry, you mean Swedro, who is not afraid to mix it up on Twitter listeners. Yes. Uh, he has no problem with a New Yorker sort of uh, attitude about <laughs> debating you. And he's a smart cookie too. So he's great. He puts out some great stuff. One of the things that you guys are famous for quoting and I actually heard referenced on Masters in Business the other day, the other Cliff, not your brother, but Asnes was talking about uh, one of Wes's comments and it wasn't, would God fail as an active manager? I think he's talking about compounding your face off. I can't remember. It was one of the Wes-isms. Give us an update while we're here on trend following because you guys also have done in-house sort of managed futures offerings for many years. You now have some various trend exposed funds. Uh, one of my favorites we've used is Voldemort. VMOT. I don't think anyone else calls it that except for me. Hyde has now trend following inputs. Have you guys seen a marketably different attitude from advisors on trend? Because for for the long part of uh, the last decade, it's seemingly there's this tiny cohort of people who are into trend and are, you know, that's their religion, the 99% or distaste or downright, you know, just, just not interested. But then a 2022 comes along and it really helps. What's the vibe? Tell us a little bit about how you guys think about trend in general. What's been the response over the last year or two? So on the production side, there's been 
a vast increase in people who want to launch managed futures ETFs or different product. And usually people only want to launch product if there's some sort of underlying demand that's pushing it. So I would just say from the production side, there certainly must be increase in demand because there's more products that are coming to market that uh, you know want to deliver these sort of exposures. The only thing I would say is the problem that you know with managed futures, especially particularly like long, short, complicated ones, is they are the most alty of all alts that one could ever consider. And the problem is 99% of the time, they don't work, they're volatile, they're ugly, they're nasty, and you're like, why would I ever do this? And then the one time they work, everyone thinks you're a hero. And that's obviously the time that people pile in. But unless they're programmed and actually understand what they're buying and why, I just don't see this ending well for a lot of people. They're just hot money chasing a new idea that, well, it's an old idea, but it's a new idea to them just because it happened to work last year. Yeah. And all I'd add is, you know, obviously trend, trend following that that concept is going to be around forever. And so, for example, you, you mentioned like managed futures. Well, we do trend on bonds, commodities, long, short. Why? Because that complements in general, the way we view the world, right or wrong, is complements an equity portfolio. So essentially, you got your equity, which you hope grows over time. But at times, you know that's going to underperform. And that's why you do trend on bonds, commodities, right? So uh, kind of long and short. And then going into, well, we implemented trend in, you know, in uh, VMOT, but then also hide, you know, hide, I think we, we wanted to put trend in there, but as Wes mentioned, it is, I think like trend for a lot of advisors is too complicated, too risky, potentially just the overall volatility. So the idea on hide was to make it like a little bit simpler, right? Where it's like, Hey, okay, well, I missed the bond trend this month, so I lost out on one percent. Right? Not hey, I'm like four hundred levered the, you know, four hundred percent long or short the two year Treasury future, and I got hurt five six percent in a day. Right? So we tried to, I think, make it simpler in there, but it it does help advisors with the annoying questions they get of, hey, interest rates are rising. What do you do? Oh, we like got some trend in here. Hey, we got high inflation. What do you do? Hey, we got commodities at times in our portfolio. So that was our, our, I guess, attempt at trying to help like the investing community advisors with using trend in maybe like, I think a more manageable way. Yeah. I mean, having the ability to have been short bonds last year, looking back on this, and I feel like I feel a fair amount of shame. A lot of investors kind of look back and be like, what was I thinking? Allocating the bonds in many sovereigns negative yielding and then not at least hedging the possibility that a rise in interest rates was going to rip your face off which is what happened and so managed futures one of the very few allocations that could have at least shorted bonds and protected and they did last year like it it was a massive massive benefit the interesting thing about the alternatives and this applies to stocks we've seen this the last few years there was a podcast that Pomp did with the My First Million guys, and they had a their course talking about crypto. But I think this applies equally to stocks as well as funds. But they basically said, like, a way to keep people from holding. They said we need to have a brokerage that has what they call it a paper hands bitch tax, meaning like if you sell this, if you if you have paper hands and you're selling this investment, we're going to charge you twenty five percent 
if you exit in the first amount of time. And this was an idea we talked about for a long time. And so listeners, if you want to start this brokerage, let us know. I want to fund it. But basically the concept is, you know, you establish a certain holding period, one, three, five, 10 years, and there's some penalty for exiting that soon. I think the same thing really applies to professional investors and institutions when they allocate to alternatives. I see this time again, and it's frustrating for me, and I'm sure it's for you guys talking to people in a way where the time horizon is like a month, six months, a year, like what is happening now? I at least think it's hard to predict when things like trend are going to do well. Does that make any sense? You guys got any thoughts on that? Yeah. I think a lot of times it's, you know, life happens, right? So it's like you got professional investors, which might be an investment committee and they had someone on the board who was like, Hey, yeah, we're going to add managed futures. Cause then they explained why, right? It's like you add managed futures for 2022, but they might have added that in 2016. And then that person left in 2020. And then everyone's like, wait, what's, What's going on with this fund here? It's like, you know, flat for five years when the market's like straight up, you know? So I think, unfortunately, uh, I agree with you. I like the idea of locking, obviously, who, who doesn't want to have, who doesn't be collecting management fees on money that's locked up? It's a great idea, man. The problem, you can't do it in the ETF structures. You have to do it in the brokerage wrapper, right? And the brokerage business sounds terrible to me. I like, it sounds like all-time nightmare as far as compliance. Or you have to do it in a mutual fund or like a private fund wrapper, which you lose some of the tax benefits. But if anyone knows how to get wonky with uh, structuring this, it's you guys. So let me know if you figure out. I'm game. Yeah. The, the only anti-pitch on that is, is it's one of those things where it's kind of like a double-edged sword, right? So to the extent you solve the behavior problem, you also solve the excess return problem which we don't want to solve, right? Like you kind of want the stuff to suck, to be difficult, to be painful. And you want to see people be stupid and trade and do bad things because in the end, that's why it works for those who have the discipline. So we'll let everyone else do it though. So like this fund brokerage isn't going to be a trillion dollar fund. So it'll soak up. And then, you know, my, my, my idea behind this brokerage or fund was always you have the penalty of the bad behavior, but part or all of that cost recycles back to the other investors as a dividend. So you get like a good behavior, you get frequent flyer miles, doesn't matter, some sort of reward to the people for behaving. I think this thing would absolutely kill. I got enough on my plate. You guys probably do too. So I think the other problem with that is the only people that would probably rationally think that's a good idea are already the people that are pretty rational, disciplined, and are already like, our clients and your clients, so they don't need this as much. And it's it's really the it's the people that are that need it the most that don't understand they need it the most, and they're never going to buy it. So it's like a chicken or the egg challenge, I would think. I think there's a big um, like gifting market, not sort of like the annuity crowd, where it's your parent, your grandparent, you buy this for a kid or someone else, you get them oh, started. There you go. Yeah. I think like, and this is like, you have to have like a 10 year time horizon. Anyway, we've, t- I, I talk about certain things like this way too much for very little actual production. So listeners, you want to go through Y Combinator with this, hit me up. The same thing on the alternatives. Like I was discussing with someone, where was this in Park City? Where was it? it wasn't in Park City. Um, somewhere in the last week or two where 
you know, we were talking about the concept of, of a strategy and it doesn't matter what it is. You can call it managed futures, you can call it value, you can call it foreign, whatever. But, you know, having this same conversation with people and I try to, you know, not shame people, but just reframe the analogy or the conversation. But they were talking about a fund that just like our strategy that hadn't done well as expected. And so therefore they're going to sell it. It was one of our funds. I don't even remember which one. Not important. But I said, you know, cool. You know, uh, that's your prerogative. But also like how many times in your career have you bought an investment and it did awesome, like just spectacular. And he said, you know what? Here's the criteria we had for this investment. It did way better than expected. And so we have to sell it, right? No one has ever said that in my entire career to me. Meb, we bought your fund. It just absolutely crushed, but way more than it should have. So we got to sell it. No, they say they ascribe brilliance to you or the strategy or to themselves for deciding to make the strategy. But the concept theoretically should be the same, right? Where you have in our world of quantitative expected outcomes. And to me, it's sort of the same conclusion, but no one, of course, no one does that, right? They say, ah, I was brilliant for making that decision. Anyway, let me know when someone tells you guys that. Say, guys, you were just too good. I'm sorry. We got got to let you go. Speaking of let you go, we're not going to let you do it yet. We had a, a few inbound questions from some other people. So let's get to them. We talk a lot about this concept of you know, being outliers, which you guys are for a lot of reasons, but thinking about your non-consensus views, you know, and, and we have a whole list of things that we believe that I think most of our professional peers don't. So 75% or more. What's something that, you know, you guys kind of at your core is something that you look around, you talk to advisors, you talk to pros, you talk to people at the big institutions where they would just totally disagree with you about anything come to mind? Well, I got one, and and this is just uh, some we've known about for a long time, and I went through the whole uh, rigmarole of writing a paper last year, an academic paper, doing the whole referee process, which is a pain. It's kind of very idiosyncratic, to be honest with you. As you know, Meb, you just get a random referee. I did it once and then gave up. I was like, that was the most ridiculous process. Now I'm just going to throw them online. Let every, let the entire internet dunk on it and just have at it. I was like, well, it's for the credential of being able to say I did it. But you exist in a little bit different world. You guys PhDs after your name. Yeah. And, and there's pros to it as well. You know, it's just time. and But I would say it is idiosyncratic. But um, the title of the paper is Long Only Value Investing. Does size matter? Right. So I got it published like late last year. And the whole idea is if you talk to almost any even institutional investor and you say, hey, I have to do value investing, they're like, oh, small cap value. Like that's just that's just the response, right? Like that's essentially they've been told, hey, value works better in small, which it does from a long short perspective. Therefore, I should allocate if I'm going to be a value investor in small cap value. And essentially the whole idea of the paper is to say, hey, what happens if we just look at the long legs of value, like small cap value? or large value, but we equal weight the portfolio, which that's what we do. That's what you do. And we just say, hey, let's compare across different cuts like tercials, quintiles, deciles, multiple measures, combo measure. So we create like 15 test portfolios in small value, 15 test portfolios in large value that we equal weight. 
And what you see is the returns are like statistically insignificantly different, i.e. large value equal weighted using a specific measure is statistically insignificantly different than small value market cap weighted or equal weighted. And the large value is more liquid, which is kind of cool, right? So you get similar returns with more liquidity, yet there are a lot of people that'll say, no, you have to do small cap value. So hence, uh, you know, obviously, like we've done large value equal weighted since 2012, late 2012, right? And we did that because, hey, there are good small cap value managers out there. Like there are. Right. Like we don't need to like be the 20th or 50th small cap value manager out there. We're going to do large value. We're going to equate. So that's my one consensus view that other people have that I would disagree with. And I think the data actually backs us up there. Well, when you say 20 or 50 small cap value, it's more like 500 or a thousand, but I hear you. Well, it's interesting, you know, because investors, um, so much of the narrative in how they think about portfolios, and we see this a lot in the institutional and advisor community, is very much like the Lego building blocks. And I'm not talking down on this, but for example, people were like, well, I have my spot for large cap value, mid cap value, small cap value, large cap growth, mid cap growth, and small cap growth. There's some of these like philosophical discussions that people get into that, depending on the design, may or may not have a big impact. But if you end up diluting across you know everything i think you end up as kind of like the same way it's like the quants deciding between do you sort on value and momentum or do you do the average of both right like do you end up a totally different portfolio but does it kind of same thing no i think that's interesting and i think part of that is probably this belief of small caps as a factor alone having alpha right like do you think that's part of the embedded bias on that idea let me just emphasize Jack's point because he mentioned it, but we got to make this painfully clear. Large cap value portfolios are statistically indistinguishable from small cap value portfolios. That statement alone will drive most people bonkers. The key reason why is when people do the analysis, they're looking at value weight large caps, which means really what you did is you put 50% of your company in like these monster mega cap companies. But if you take out mega cap, which yes, it's true, mega cap value doesn't do anything for you, but mega caps, there's like what, five stocks? Let's just throw those out. But if outside of that, large cap value is the same as small cap value. That is such a profound statement that nobody believes. It is just a fact. And Jack has that shown like quantitatively, you could go hack on it yourself. It's just a fact. And, and I do not, no, and there's actually AQR has a whole paper saying that size doesn't matter. Robico has a whole paper saying size doesn't matter. The problem is they did it through like kind of geeky, like factor long short methods that no one actually understands. Jack just made it painfully obvious through like the lens of how like a normal person does it. Size does not matter. Valuation does. Buy cheap stocks wherever they reside. Do not buy small caps just because someone sold you that. By the way, listeners, there's a lot of things I hate about academic papers. The number one being all the charts and tables are at the end. Number two, you know, in our world, one of the most confusing things, and a lot of listeners, I think, don't hear this, but 
when you say valuated, it doesn't mean you're weighting by valuations like factors. It means you're market cap weighting. Am I, by the way, did I get that right? Yeah. You, you <laughs> yes. did, yes. And it's the most confusing damn thing in the world because you hear people going, well, valuated this, valuated. And we're like, oh, well, you weighted based on price earnings or enterprise value. No, that just means market cap weighting. And it's the strangest descriptor that is the most confusing thing of anything I've ever been through in my entire career, I think, when it involves factor base. It's so confusing. You have to just follow the standard, Meb. Yeah. Wes, what uh, you got all sorts of batshit ideas. So what sort of non-consensus view really sticks out for you? Anything come to mind? I mean, I don't really know what the consensus thinks because I don't really pay attention that much. But I mean, in general, like I'm, I'm evergreen, man. I think taxes are the biggest thing out there across the board. If you don't solve that problem, you didn't solve any problems. I mean, look, this is coming from someone who lives in California, speaking to someone who lives in Puerto Rico. So there's an arbitrage here that is probably more impactful than uh, anything that, uh, you know, else we could we could do or talk about. We spend a lot of time talking about taxes. Yeah, yeah, we do for sure. I just think that it's it's people still don't spend enough time thinking about it. And it has such a huge influence on every aspect of from a financial perspective. The other one that that perplexes the hell out of me, and it's it's even to this day, is just basic like momentum, right? Cross-sectional momentum, 212, jigadish momentum, whatever, relative strength, whatever the hell you want to call it. We all know about it. Everyone talks about it. Even to this day, there's like a, a million value funds and there's like 20 momentum funds. And if you go talk to institution allocators, like I, there's none of them allocate to momentum. They all want to do value or stock picking value. I just find that baffling considered if you just did a straight horse race and you had a 20 year objective of trying to compound your face off, you would allocate to momentum strategies. Nobody does this, even though everybody knows about it. It's very perplexing to me. And I don't understand it. I mean, it's a good example is, um, and listeners, we own this fund and we have for a while, but they have two momentum ETFs, QMOM, IMOM, as well as some other momentum blends. But are there even any other momentum foreign ex-US momentum equity funds out there? I don't even know if there's any ETFs that do it other than you guys iShares has a half-assed one, kind of like MTOM, where it's called Momentum, but it has like a six-month cycle. It's not really, but no, not not really. You know, and so this goes back to our early discussion on, you know, is this a good thing that the market hasn't embraced, you know, this idea because it continues to drive some of the inefficiency or is it, hey, we're just banging our heads against the wall. We're dealing with this on our side. We're, uh, we're getting ready to write a 10-year retrospective on um, our shareholder yield strategies. And so, I mean, we're getting old guys. I mean, this is going to be 10 years for us in May. And so uh, Jack and Wes helped us on the original research for the book over a decade ago. And I look back on it and, you know, essentially there's been very few, if any, shareholder yield ETFs launched in the past decade. And so part of me is like, are we just crazy or uh, is the rest of the world crazy? I don't know which, but I'll find out one day. You know what I think is interesting as we're talking about here is it seems to me as so much is driven by social proof and the Fama French papers and DFA, like like there's these narratives that are so powerful in the marketplace. Like what is their narratives? Small values, everything. What's the other narrative? 
momentum can't be extracted because of frictional costs. And this is just so pervasive. And I don't know why one random bald dude from Chicago who, yeah, he's really cool. And he used to be my advisor. I don't know why he has so much influence on the global narrative and it somehow seeped into the mindset of every investor out there. It's baffling to me. Like, I don't know. I don't understand it, but maybe it's a human nature problem. Well, if to make it timely, value stocks are getting smoked today, particularly small cap value. So we're going to tie this to you guys. By the end of the day, they're probably going to be up. Fed days, never know. One point, put a bow on the tax discussion that I thought was interesting. So I was at a conference recently, let's call it 100, 200 high level financial professionals. And they were talking about ETFs and, and there's a little bit of like ribbing and joking about how the ETF industry has grown when we started you know, a decade ago, or even even the decade prior, you go talk to many investors and you'd say ETF and they'd say, what's it? What's an EFT? Like, is that like a fund transfer? Like, even though ETFs have been around since the late 90s, like, you know, there was still an educational process. And now you say that 100% people know what it is. And I was talking about taxes and this very specific panel was on private markets. And I go, okay, you know, all of us know what ETFs are. I go, raise your hands if you know what QSBS is. And we've done some episodes with you guys where we talk about all sorts of esoteric tax shit. But I said, you know, raise your hand if you know what QSBS is. And one hand was raised, which was Jason Buck, which was the night before I talked about, talked with him and told him what I was talking about. So he doesn't count. So zero, essentially zero people. And I said, you guys, like, here's a good example of something that, you know, could offer more value on the private side than anything else you could possibly come up with on, you know, security selection and like all the other things we spend the sexy stuff. And then here's just boring old taxes. Listeners, you can Google it, but we've done some episodes on this. But just boring old taxes may be more impactful. And so like the ETF structure, you know, I think in many cases, and also like, you know, talking about your box strategies, but like tax ideas can be more impactful than the the asset allocation decision. You know what we need to do? Here we go. As we start to reframe some of these old ideas that you say dominate the industry, and there's the classic one about how, and they quote it wrong, but security selection drives 99% of returns, right? You know, the quote, B. Bauer, whatever it was, paper, but actually the real paper was actually not returns. It was volatility of returns. But anyway, you should do like an addendum um, to that where it's like how much of the after tax is actually drives the returns. And I bet that the portion is enormous on just like choosing fund structure, I must say two things. First off, I thought you had a genius idea that no one even really understands except for tax geeks where you said, hey, I'm going to go own a pool of a bunch of random VCs that all qualify for QSBS and basically create a long-term private tax, tax-free tax you know, capital gain portfolio. Like, Why um, everyone in the planet didn't say like, oh my God, that's a genius idea Meb came up with is beyond me. Because that's like, I would totally do that if I had more money. I think the people that do it don't talk about it because they're like, I don't want this to go away. Like it almost ended up on the block at the last time, like always the last minutes. Like, and, and to me, listeners, I think it's been the most impactful legislation that's aimed at entrepreneurs in generating new, like a Cambrian explosion of companies. But the people that know about it, I feel like are kind of like, hey, let's just not talk too much about this because it's such a good structure. And it's an amazing incentive. It's Obama era legislation with Cory Booker and others. Anyway. Yeah, I forgot as well. I was so excited about your tax idea. I was like, man, 
Yeah, more people should do that. <laughs> Just ask Wes about tax stuff and we can chat yeah. for four hours. Well, you know, I mean, this is like the, the conversation gets amped up on when we get see even weirder is like Peter Thiel has like a $5 billion IRA. So it's a similar situation where, you know, you can put some of these binary exponential outcome investments into a sheltered account. But, you know, God forbid carried interest ever gets put on the chopping block. And I was laughing about that because a lot of the private equity industry, you know, when the the whole uh, Silicon Valley bank stuff was going down, I said, you know, the this tech crowd better be careful because they keep poking, poking the bear of the government. They're going to turn on them quickly and uh, take away some of the benefits they have. All right, gentlemen, you know, so um, we're going to wind down here in a little bit. Colby wanted to ask me what the most embarrassing moment of your career is. That I don't know if that's going to be something that makes it to print. Is there something that you guys could even talk about? I'm trying to think of the most embarrassing. I'll start if you guys can think of anything. Yeah, I, I have one. The most um, paranoid, panicked I've ever been in my career was sitting down in my early days with Mark Haynes and Aaron Burnett. And I absolutely froze up and, and couldn't breathe. That's like never happened to me in my life before or since. It was on the NYSC floor. We're like getting ready to go. And all of a sudden I was like, I couldn't swallow. And I was like, oh dear God, this is this is like, and then you get panicky and your heart starts racing. You stop breathing and it gets worse. And it was made better because Mark just starts ranting and he looks at me. He's like, every guy comes on here. They think they're going to get Aaron's number. Like they think you're just going to ask her out and go out. And he's just ranting for like 30 seconds. And I'm like, okay, I started breathing. And then by the end of it, I was like, well, can I get her number? And then he he looked like he was about to reach out and strangle me. And then it was like, three, two, one, go. And I was like, okay, fine. I feel better now. But I literally thought I was going to pass out and uh, fall over. So mine, this was probably like 10 years ago. I was in what they call like a battle of the quants competition. And, and I was representing like the quant side and then they had like the stock pickers and they're all these like 200 IQ. New York or where was it? Yeah, in, in New York. And I was like, all right, I got to represent, man. So so I ha- I wore underneath my suit and I love quant shirt. And so my concept is, hey, what I'll do is at the end, I'll do like a few burpees and I'll rip off my suit. And because at the end, they'll be like, all right, give me your final pitch. And so I'm like, all right, that's what I'm going to do. And so literally it's like 10 minutes before I'm going to go do this thing. And I, and I'm doing a little rehearsal and I'm in my suit. I do a burpee and I hear this, my entire pants slice in half, but I got nowhere to go. So I got to show up to this thing and I have to explain like, like I'm literally like pantless and and I've got these like dangling pants and I ended up doing it at the end, but it was very embarrassing because I'm rolling up at like this formal event with like, my whole entire suit pants is like, <laughs> the crotch has yeah. exploded. It was very terrible. Don't do burpees before yeah. a speech. Jack, you probably haven't done anything to embarrass yourself yet. You still time. You got anything come to mind? Uh, yeah, I would say mine uh, and Wes will remember this. It was nothing public. So, but it, it was more private. It was when uh, Wes and I, this was probably back 2011, 2012. We're working. Hey, let's build a model to like predict the market. And, you know, when when you first get into investing, you're like, yeah, I'm going to build the best model. I can build a model to predict the market. And uh, we were like, dude, we have it. And uh, send it over to the client. They're like, this is awesome. How, how will we go and uh, implement? So I started like, looking to like, pull like data. I'm like, okay, where are we going to get data feeds? And uh, lo and behold, we had like a look-ahead bias. 
in the Excel file. We like to call the, hey, you can build a $20 billion business on that. That was the F squared. Uh, that's what they did, right? It was like a, two, a week ahead, look ahead. Yes. And essentially, it is true. If you can look ahead into the future, you will be a very successful investor in equity markets. But uh, at the time, you know, that was very. Uh, yeah. And in, in fairness, that one was it's not wasn't blatant. It was kind of like a lot of those machine learning models. There's like embedded look ahead that you don't really notice unless you do second, third degree analysis. And yeah, we, we only found out to Jack's point when we're like, all right, let's do this and spent probably a year of brain power. And we're like, oh, well, we can't actually do this. Well, it's funny, you know, like I spent a long time back in the day, um, Nelson Freeberg uh, had these formula research and this was sort of a very uh, early in my career, very impactful because I coded up all of his strategies and he used to write one of the best writers in all of investing. Um, I actually, and I told him this one day, before he passed, but I said, you know, I was too cheap as a 20 something, you know, to buy, subscribe to your issues, but I bought them all photocopied from some kid in Germany, right? Like, and so I have this whole encyclopedia, but added a bunch of these and you could come up with all these econometric models that, you know, kind of predict markets. And the takeaway always for me that as complicated and multi-factors they could be just using trend alone gets you like 90% of the way there. And so, you know, we would have spreads and GDP and corporate bonds and, you know, interest rates on and on and on. And then you're just like, well, like trend is like 90% of this. So the simplification, I feel like makes it a lot, uh, a lot easier. Which is what we said earlier. Trend is evergreen. Like it's just, going to be around because it works. It has historically. You know what I've been thinking a lot about? Because if you think about what, what are the things that we all like to do? What we like to do value, we like to do momentum and trend. Every single one of those things is basically price, right? Value is just price scaled with some fundamental. Momentum is just relative price. And trend is just absolute price. It's in the end, it all boils down. If you really think about it, like all that matters in the marketplace is price, period. It, it, like I, I was thinking about that. I was like, this came to my light. Like everything I do, everything we do, everything anyone that that I think I respect does, it boils down to they're somehow incorporating price with like a you know something around that. But that's all that matters because that is truth in markets. Yeah, it was a famous like Ned Davis quote is like price is unique. It's the only indicator that can't diverge from itself. So the problem with a lot of these other indicators, you have this history, like model this, and then at some point they, you know, <laughs> they, they go opposite. Yeah. It's price is all that matters in the end. Gentlemen, um, this has been great. We've covered a lot. Anything uh, else uh, you guys want to hit on that we didn't t- talk about today? We're good. When are we going on an elk hunting trip? I'm excited. I've never been. Let's go iguana, iguana hunting, man. Cliff sold that. He sold the elk business. I got iguanas down here. Uh, there's millions of them in Puerto Rico. Did you see like when Florida went through its cold spell, they had like a big, huge iguana watch warning because apparently when it gets that cold, they just fall out of the trees. Like they, they like hibernate and then they fall out of the trees and they land on people and like concuss them. <laughs> so there's like an iguana watch. Actually, trivia question for you guys. So at the beach club the other day, an iguana jumped in the pool and it just sat on the bottom. And I said, all right, how long do we think that thing can hold its breath? How long do you guys think an iguana can hold its breath underwater? 
I mean, like, I'll go two minutes, 10, 30. Oh my God. Yeah. They're they're like fish, man. And, And it was proven this, this little guy was like sitting down there 30 minutes. They could hold their breath, man. Isn't that crazy? Did anybody get out of the pool or is it just Puerto Rico? There's like, whatever. Oh yeah. No, everyone got out of the pool. And it, and then it, you know, it was fun watching the pool boys, like go in there and try to fight the thing. But we were just curious. Cause he just sat, it sat on the bottom of the pool and we're like, it's gotta be dead. And then I Googled it. And then I, and I, I, I posed the trivia to everyone. And obviously everyone's like, Oh, like five minutes, 10 minutes. And it's like 30 minutes. I was like, well, that explains why he's sitting on the pool and chilling out. That That's a crazy trivia fact. There was a great comedian recently. I think it was Bill Burr who was here and he was talking about going swimming in a pool. And he's like, you know, I don't understand like swimming in the ocean. He's like, you're basically going into a pool up to your neck and you have no idea what's underneath there. He's like, how many people would get into a pool if there was a, if you like threw some crabs and some fish in there? He's like, zero people would. They're like, that's crazy. There's a bunch of like, you know, predators and other random disgusting things swimming around in there. But he's like, people have no problem getting in the ocean. He's like, I don't get that. And I was like, that's an interesting framing. I, I, I kind of feel the same way now. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>